What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, New York! She's brash. She's bold. And she's one of the wildest, most controversial rock stars in history. After a turbulent childhood, Courtney Love found an outlet for her rage in rock and roll. Her band Hole became darlings of the underground rock scene. And when she fell in love with Kurt Cobain, Courtney's life seemed complete. But this rock and roll fairy tale quickly unraveled. When her husband took his own life, Courtney shared her anguish with the world. Many predicted Courtney would self-destruct. Instead, she began a stunning turnaround, transforming herself into an A-list actress and embracing new sounds in her music. But it wasn't long before Courtney's demons came back to haunt her. Now clean and sober, Rock's dirtiest blonde shares her remarkable journey. This is the story of Courtney Love, Behind the Music. Part of what makes me good at my job is because I was built physically for it. You gotta be hardy. You gotta be able to like stage dive and fight up big ass fucking guys. You gotta be able to like play topless and feel like a fucking Amazon. That's what I love. I have to express my rage. I'm really angry. I look at audiences and I like what I see. And so when I say fuck you, I say it in a loving manner and they say fuck you right back. Yeah, I do little fucks. Courtney Michelle Harrison was born on July 9, 1964, in San Francisco, California. Her parents, Linda Reese and Hank Harrison, were part of the city's burgeoning psychedelic scene. Hank lived in the Haight-Ashbury, and it was a wild place at that time. He managed the Grateful Dead for five seconds, and he was an amateur acid maker. At the age of five, Courtney appeared on the back of the Grateful Dead album, Oxa Moxa, known for the hidden phrase in the title, We Ate the Acid. It was clear from the start that Hank and Linda's experimental lifestyle wasn't compatible with marriage or raising a child. I was born into a big custody trial. And I was called like child X in the San Francisco paper. It was a big deal because my grandparents had a lot of money. The custody case centered around accusations that Courtney's father gave her drugs. He gave me acid. I'm pretty sure I don't remember. My father's just out and out nuts. Hank denied the allegations, but Linda won the case. By that time, she'd married Frank Rodriguez, who legally adopted Courtney. She and I had a very magical relationship. She was my daughter, and I loved her. He was great to me growing up. He was the one adult figure that was nice to me. The new family moved to Oregon, where Linda and Frank had two daughters and later adopted a son. Linda, studying psychotherapy, put the family on the couch. 
We were in therapy constantly. We had this um, family meeting, which was called, What's Bugging Me About You Is? Mom would give us big red batons, and we would have to hit each other to get the anger out. It was crazy. Their mindset was totally different. We had teepees in the backyard, and people came from England to have conventions on believing in fairies. It was just a different time. Despite their best efforts, Linda and Frank couldn't make the family work. They divorced when Courtney was seven. I think it was a major crossroads in her life. Courtney began having some difficulties with her sisters. I remember my first fight, which was actually very, very liberating. It was specifically liberating because I was so angry. Soon, Courtney's behavior was so out of control, her mother sent her to a new therapist. The man that I went to therapy with was a pervert, and he had pornography in his bathroom. He was gross. He wrote down that I was um, slightly schizoid at the age of like nine. You can't be slightly schizoid at the age of nine, besides which I'm just not. And that stayed in my file and haunted me. In 1972, Linda remarried and moved the family to New Zealand, bringing along everyone but the increasingly difficult Courtney. The eight-year-old was left behind in the care of a family friend. It was a move that would cement the rift between mother and daughter forever. I just decided, you betraying, treacherous bitch. Fuck it, we don't get along. Like, I mean, that's it. My sister's never really forgiven my mom for the way that she was raised. And that's built a wall between them that is pretty insurmountable. I broke that bond somewhere. You know, maybe I'm deeply wounded. Maybe that's why screaming feels so fucking good. Eventually, Courtney moved back in with her stepfather, Frank. Linda appealed to me and asked if I would take Courtney, and I said, yes, I love Courtney. My dad was probably the best at understanding her and accepting her. Courtney adjusted well to her new life, immersing herself in art and acting classes. For the first time, she began to dabble in music. Me and my friends started a fake band. We called ourselves The Galaxies. The first song I ever wrote was called Shady Lake, and I sent it to Neil Sadaka. We're gonna go down to the Shady Lake where you and me are gonna make sweet, sweet love, sweet, sweet love. At least it had a hook. And I was, you know, in fifth grade. More than anything, she dreamed of fame, writing about it night after night in her journal. I can't remember not wanting to be famous. All I could see was that I would be famous and then everything would be fair. At the age of 12, she applied to the new Mickey Mouse Club, only to be rejected. I wish my mother had been a stage mother. I wouldn't have had to forge my parents' signature when I tried out for the new Mouseketeers as Coco Rodriguez and read Sylvia Plath. That's how inappropriate. I was so raised in a cave, I read a poem about incest trying out for the new Mouseketeers. After seven months in Oregon, Courtney had to face an even tougher rejection. Living with Frank just wasn't working out. It came to a point where my wife and Courtney were at odds, and I was presented with a, a choice, you know, her or me, and the conflict was, was just intense, and I couldn't handle it. This latest betrayal pushed Courtney over the edge into a world of ever-increasing anger and alienation. Who wants her? She couldn't make it with me. She didn't make it with her mother. She was abandoned. She was lost. Now a young teenager, Courtney began living a nomadic life, bouncing from foster home to foster home, but trusting no one. 
We'd walk in the door and know that guy was gonna molest you. Just know it, like within an hour, and be out. Courtney had it really tough. She lived in a lot of different places with a lot of different people that didn't know what to do with her. She had a really difficult childhood. Then at 13, after getting caught shoplifting a t-shirt, Courtney was sent to juvenile hall, and from there, reform school. At that point, I had found the runaways, and I'd seen foxes, and I decided that I was just gonna be a juvie like Cherie Curry. This was the beginning of when I started seeing Courtney having difficulties relating to people, not knowing who she was or what she wanted. I would start the occasional riot by banging on the door and like making animal noises, and everyone would end up in restraints, and it would be a real fun night at juvie. What makes her great is her rebellion, and what makes her difficult is her rebellion. By age 16, Courtney was caught in a cycle of rage and self-destruction until the day she was saved by rock and roll. It's the luckiest break I ever got. It was in juvenile hall. It was my first sort of crush, and he brought me Patti Smith horses and pretenders, pretenders. It was these two iconic women, and I realized that you could do something that was completely subversive, but that didn't involve violence and didn't involve felonies. I stopped making trouble. I stopped. Because I went to juvenile hall, my aspirations to do something higher end, such as act, were blown. What is the only answer after that? Rock, there is no other answer. I knew what I had a mission for. Coming up, Courtney's quest turns toxic. And later, a rock and roll fairy tale begins when Behind the Music continues. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1980, after a turbulent childhood, 16-year-old Courtney Michelle Rodriguez Manili decided to legally emancipate herself from her parents. She gained access to a trust fund set up by her grandparents 
and moved to Portland to pursue her dreams of rock and roll superstardom. My trust fund gave me 500 bucks a month. Who can live on that at all? I was quite the terror in Portland. She started stripping at local dives for cash and developed schemes for getting the most out of her trust fund. I would just tell them lies, just lie. I had four abortions this month, which is <laughs> biologically impossible. What did I need a modeling portfolio? That one was good. Over the next two years, Courtney traveled around the world, from the new wave music scene in England, to strip clubs in the Far East, to the punk scene on the West Coast. Along the way, she picked up a new name. All of a sudden she said, oh yeah, well my name, it's Courtney Love. And I just kind of whipped, my head whipped around, and I'm like, what? Then it stuck. On one trip to Los Angeles, Courtney Love found a partner in crime in bassist Jennifer Finch. She was a brassy, know-it-all, loudmouth, and I loved her. She was like no other girl I'd met in Los Angeles. They quickly bonded over their love of both music and drugs. There was this huge amount of peer pressure to do heroin, huge. I did a lot of drugs very young. I started using when I was 13 or 14 to find companionship in the world and running partners. I've always been a little bit of a badass, but not enough to stick a needle in my arm. It just became, try it, you'll love it, try it, everyone's doing it. So she wanted to try it. <laughs> she called me and uh, she said, oh my gosh, I just did heroin for the first time and, and I flipped out. That was just not okay in my book. And she was telling me, oh, God, you know, I just I threw up like eight times. And, you know, now I feel really good, but I just got so sick. I don't sit if I have to go to a meeting or something and go, oh, God, it felt so good because it didn't feel so good. And I told her, don't ever, ever call me when you're on that stuff. I can't believe you did that. And I think I hung up on her. Courtney continued to follow her impulses, traveling up and down the West Coast, staying with friends, stripping for cash and looking for a band in San Francisco she finally found one. It was the summer I was 18. I saw Faith No More playing with Gun Club, and they had a crap singer, and I had a wedding gown on, and I looked fucking cool, and I knew it. And um, I demanded to be in their band, and then I broke a bottle over my head. That is the legend. Um, I can't recall. She just talked her way basically into the band. Courtney said, what sign are you? He goes, cancer. I go, me too. When's your birthday? July 1st. Me too. I was like, wow. It was like kind of like kismet. That was my way of getting him to sleep with me, was by telling him that I had the same birthday. And it stuck. Oh, it's such a bad lie. It was so awful. Courtney fronted Faith No More for a few months. Despite some early promise, she didn't last. Faith No More didn't want to have the image of a chick singer anymore. And I was unhappy as hell. We wanted a male energy. That's sort of just a direction that we needed to go as a band. There was no place for a woman in that world. There was none. I declared that I was going to start a band. I wanted to have an all-female band that took over the entire world. Courtney's mission to find rock and roll sisterhood led her to guitarist Kat Bieland, whom she met at a club in Portland in 1984. The best thing that ever happened to me, in a way, was Kat. She fell to my feet grabbed my ankles and said, please be in my band, be my guitarist. I turned Kat on to some music. We made friends. She had some Valium. I wanted some Valium, so I took some Valium. So we bonded over her having a pharmaceutical. Courtney now had all the pieces in place. With Kat on guitar and Jennifer Finch on bass, Courtney was finally fronting her own all-girl band, Sugar Baby Doll. 
Cat was a gifted guitar player. Jennifer was very, very charismatic, and I wanted to be the genius, the quiet genius. The quiet genius? If she wanted to be the quiet genius, she didn't tell me about it. Courtney had huge ambitions for the band, but once again, her old demons were getting in the way. She would get money every month and just blow it in a huge way. Just would go out and like buy like really expensive perfumes and candles and flowers and drugs, you know? <laughs> she would say, um, let's put a little of this, you know, speed. We'll just put a little in our tea, it won't hurt anything, you know, in our tea, like ladies, and have a little, it'll help us write our songs or get inspired. And that's how that started happening. Soon, a little bit of speed turned into a lot of heroin. It was almost like I did it so many times until I became addicted. It's like I forced myself to become addicted, and that created a problem. It did start to interfere with the creative process. She ended up needing to go get high before we would practice. Every time she'd do it, she'd take all her clothes off, walk in circles, talk about stuff, not play music. By 1985, drug use and internal fighting had caused the band to break up. Just 20 years old, Courtney Love was back at square one. My ambition is, is unwavering, but at the same time, I can be terribly self-destructive because I get to the point where, fuck it all. I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, so fuck it. By 1985, Courtney Love's escalating drug habit and emotional volatility had led to the demise of her band, Sugar Baby Doll. But the 20-year-old was undeterred. I was really, really ambitious, and I wanted to be really big and a world beater, and I was gonna find a fucking way. Courtney headed back to L.A., where she started taking jobs as a movie extra, eventually landing an audition for the film Sid and Nancy. It was the perfect role for her to get into film. The strung out, crazy, psychotic girlfriend of a strung out rock star. There's an audition tape which Courtney made. We saw that before we saw her. Here was this girl, you know, who was just so egotistical, so strong, so determined, so ready, you know, to show up and be there and be present and make sure the camera noticed her, you know. It, was, it would freak some people out, you know. Courtney didn't get the lead role, but director Alex Cox was so impressed with her audition, he offered her the smaller part of Gretchen. I thought she was tremendous. I like strong women and I like people with a lot of energy, and she had both. Something about Courtney clicked on screen. And overnight, she was being touted as the next indie queen. For his next film, Cox felt Courtney was ready to step into the limelight and carry her own movie. Here's this girl. We've got to give her a proper part this time, you know. Let's make her the lead and see where that takes us. And the result was straight to hell. She was playing a pregnant woman in the movie, and I remember she says it made her look fat being pregnant. <laughs> We're like, yeah, really? I was fat. I had a big nose, so I wasn't happy with my parents. She started taking a little bit of the stuffing out every day, so no one would notice. Straight to Hell premiered in 1987 and was immediately panned by critics. And despite Courtney's best efforts, the next big role never materialized. I became kind of famous in a celebutant downtown New York 80s way, and it was misery itself. I hated it. I hated myself, I hated the whole thing. Ended up in Minville, Oregon at a topless bar called Johnny's. I was like, 
fuck this, and I went to Alaska. I just stripped and shut up and simplified everything in my life, got rid of everything I owned, and just wrote. And I was 24, and I was looming on 25. And if I hadn't made it for real at 25, that's it. Courtney packed up and headed for Los Angeles, determined to take one final stab at rock and roll. I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I wasn't gonna shoot to movie fame. And there's a raging screamer in me that needs to, you know, get out. Looking to form a band, Courtney put an ad in the paper. After a few months of tinkering, she found her lineup, guitarist Eric Erlinson, drummer Caroline Rue, and bassist Jill Emery. Hole was born. My goal for Hole was stupid, and I said, this band is going to be 10 times bigger than Sonic Youth, but not as big as Jane's Addiction. What was the butt for? It's like a fucking curse. That's so stupid. The gods were listening when I said that. I could have said, this band is going to be 10 times bigger than Sonic Youth and the Beatles. And that's where we'd be right now. Hole's aggressive sound was rooted in the deep-seated anger and alienation Courtney had felt her whole life. And a traumatic experience working at Jumbo Strip Club gave her the ammunition for the band's first single. I'd always been raped and was working at Jumbo's and they tried to rape me. And I'd gotten away and run on to Melrose and no one would help me. But I was so angry, I wrote Retard Girl. By 1990, Hole was building a devoted following. Courtney attributed their success to her recent spiritual awakening. I started chanting, is what happened. I started chanting Nami Moringa Kyo every day. I started to have a serious faith that this thing really, really works in terms of cause and effect. She'd be chanting for our fame. I didn't know you could chant for things like that, but she did, and it must have worked. But contrary to her girl power lyrics, Courtney felt her looks were holding her and the band back. I just didn't photograph well. And I didn't feel confident. And I saw the cover of Flipside Magazine and I said, Eric, we can sell 4,000 or we can sell 4 million. It's totally up to you. You're the one with 30 grand, not me. And so Eric Erlinson bought me my nose job. She came into rehearsal telling me she took a picture of my nose to the doctor to get her nose done. And I'm like, oh my God, it won't fit your face. Your nose is fine. It was kind of a botched job. And I remember that it was bothering her or it was swollen or something. The nose had to be done a couple of times because she kept picking at it. She was like, obsessed. It was like, I'm like, oh God, just let it heal. The minute that I did it, I felt great. And we got signed in six months, but that was mostly because I chanted or my nose was good. Hole caught the eye of Janet Billig, who signed them to Caroline Records. Released in 1991, the band's debut album, Pretty on the Inside, was raw and intense. It was aggressive and dirty and, you know, really dark stuff. There's nothing melodic on that record. The first time I ever really screamed, it was the most liberating feeling. It was very pure and very true. For the first time in her life, Courtney was doing things on her own terms and succeeding. We got a huge buzz, and I entered into the music industry thinking I was a player. I knew everything, and I knew dick. Coming up, Courtney and Kurt faced the critics, and later, sink deeper into addiction when Behind the Music continues.
In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. By 1991, Courtney Love was riding high on the indie success of Hole's debut album, Pretty on the Inside. Even her love life was getting interesting. She'd always had a weakness for moody rock and roll frontmen, but her latest conquest was the most high profile to date, the Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan. I think she was into the idea of him more so than being into him. She wanted to go out with a rock star. It was obvious. Maybe she wanted to be famous vicariously through them but it had to be a rock star. That summer on tour in Europe, Courtney developed a new infatuation. When I heard Sliver, I was like, fuck, he can fucking write. And he's got a great nose. So the two guys in rock with the best noses were Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain, and I certainly wasn't gonna meet with Axl Rose. Courtney was smitten and sent Kurt a heart-shaped box filled with miniature gifts. He didn't respond. So she continued pursuing Billy Corgan, and in October, she flew to Chicago to see him. I just wanted to go see Billy and, you know, fuck him. His girlfriend threw shoes at me, and I was like, fine, fucker. You didn't tell me you had a girlfriend. I didn't know there was a girlfriend. In a moment of rock and roll kismet, Nirvana was playing that night on the other side of town. They had just finished. I didn't even pretend I'd seen the show. I was like, hey. So I guess she got really drunk on alcohol. She fell or put herself down on the dance floor. Somehow, they got together. And then at the truck stop the next day, I called Corgan and I was like, dude, I'm so going with this guy. He's first of all really good in bed and I like him and he's cute. Billy's nose wasn't that bad, but I was all about mating for a nose. Courtney had made her choice and soon she and Kurt were inseparable. He had some flaws, I have some flaws, but we were extremely well designed for each other. We had a pragmatic and serious understanding that this was a love thing and let's have a baby. So, you know, what got in the way of that was that he uh, epically, epically sought oblivion. As Nirvana's Nevermind shot to the top of the Billboard charts, Kurt and Courtney slipped deep into heroin addiction. The way the hippies did acid, 
or gave acid to their children, as the case may be, there was a mandatory usage of heroin. If you did not do heroin, you weren't fucking cool. End up. And that applied to the hair metal bands as well as those of us that were what became known as alternative. We went on this adventure. The adventure involved too many drugs for me. Just too many drugs for me. I'm not saying there weren't a few times before I got pregnant that I enjoyed taking heroin because I did enjoy it at some point, but I stopped enjoying it damn fast. Strung out but still deeply in love, Courtney learned she was pregnant. We wanted to have a baby really bad. We wanted to have a baby, social experiment, several ties with our families, and have this baby that was really beloved. Fearing for the baby's health, management staged an intervention. We had this intervention, and it was like, you can't do drugs, you're having this baby. And she's like, I'm not doing drugs. And that was like with Kurt, like, you can't do drugs, you're having this baby. They begged me to get an abortion. I knew full well that my zygote was fine, all right? Full fucking well. So I was just like, suck it, okay? Seriously, suck it. Imagine that you had some coffee, drank some wine, and smoked some fucking weed, and then found out you were pregnant. You'd stop. In February of 92, Courtney and Kurt were married in Hawaii. The press dubbed them the grunge John and Yoko and cast Courtney in an increasingly unflattering light. It's really hard sometimes when everyone in the world is picking on you. And that's what started happening. Everyone in the world started picking on me. I really, really hurt my feelings. It was horrible. It took a long time to adapt to it, and it's, that was trauma. That was traumatic. It's like, I didn't ask to be hated. I just don't mind being a bitch. All of her life, Courtney had longed for the kind of success Kurt had now achieved. That ambition led her to push hole in a more mainstream direction. Nirvana was such a huge band, and she wanted that too. Courtney's whole deal is, I want to be pop, I want to change. I don't mind changing, I love it, but I don't want to go from A to Z. It feels fake, and I'm like, this is bullshit, and I can't do it. In mid-1992, Jill and drummer Caroline Rue quit Hole, just as the band signed a huge seven-album deal with Nirvana's label Geffen. Despite the defections, Courtney felt her dream of rock and roll stardom was finally within reach, and an enthusiastic call from Vanity Fair only seemed to confirm it. Vanity Fair wants to do a big story on her. They're going to do a huge photo shoot with a really amazing photographer. This is great. All these people around me were telling me, do it, do it. She approached it, you know, in a really brazen, kind of fuck you way. She had a picture taken pregnant with a cigarette. I think they airbrushed that out in the eventual photograph. Lynn Hirschberg's now infamous Vanity Fair article hit newsstands in August. It was a public relations disaster portraying the couple as addicts and unfit parents. Most damaging of all was a quote that had Courtney admitting that she did heroin during her pregnancy. She tore my world apart. Poor Kurt's world of art. It was horrible what she did. Horrible. The tabloids immediately pounced on the story, claiming the baby would be born addicted to heroin, or worse. To this day, Courtney insists that she stopped using heroin as soon as she discovered she was pregnant. I read it and my fucking the earth changed. And his earth changed. And a lot of things killed him, but that killed him too. 
Writer Lynn Hirschberg stated that Cobain and his wife Courtney Love had been taking heroin and that Love was even using the drug while pregnant. Eight months pregnant, the stress pushed Courtney as well as Kurt to check into Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. We had both checked into the hospital because I had a nervous breakdown about it and like used it as like a condo. And he'd have his dealer come and like fill his IV with drugs and then he'd even get more diamorphine and he was just fucking bleh. I was on another unit and just like, I, I said to my, my gynecologist, if you don't let me stay here, I won't go through with this. On August 18th, Courtney gave birth to a healthy seven pound daughter, Frances Bean. Kurt was still so sick from detox, he could barely hold his baby girl. She was early, she was early. She wanted to get the fuck out of there. She wanted to get out, because it was stressful. On what should have been the happiest day of their lives, their troubles were just beginning. Within hours, a representative from LA Children's Services arrived at the hospital with a copy of Vanity Fair, threatening to take Francis away. You know, read Vanity Fair and then to come take away this baby from loving parents that could actually take care of their child, we just didn't understand it. They wanted to make an example of them. We're gonna take advantage and milk this for all it's worth. I don't count anything that goes on in LA County Court as fucking worth a shit. It isn't real, it's reactive, and I'm the gerbil for it. Me and Kurt were the gerbils for it. That was suicidally horrible, that situation with Francis. To avoid losing their daughter to foster care, they enlisted Courtney's 20-year-old half-sister, Jamie, to serve as guardian. I took her from the hospital, and I had to be there when they saw her, which was really uh, uncomfortable. It was very difficult. They really loved that child. Courtney and Kurt were forced to undergo regular drug testing and could not be left alone with their newborn daughter. With tabloid rumors flying, the family made their first public appearance in September showing up with three-week-old Francis Bean at the MTV VMAs. The couple used the appearance as an opportunity to defend themselves and deny the widespread rumors of drug use. As the story took on a life of its own, the couple became intensely distrustful of the media. By 1993, after six months of constant watch, the court eased its restrictions, and at last the couple's child custody nightmare was over. After a few of the court dates and enough negative P-tests, they got custody back. While the fight for their baby had kept them clean, the stress had taken its toll. And soon, they went back to using heroin. I just tried for some comfort in my drug use. Just some mother's milk. Kurt was interested in oblivion, and he was going through just hell from his stomach. Kurt's stomach problems rule his life and he said himself that sometimes the only thing that would help was heroin. He was sick, like, and his body just was, like, falling apart. And then she would have to take care of him. And I think that was actually the original strain on the relationship. And he would sit there and just fucking not smile until I said, okay, do it. And I would have to then take care of him. And I started really resenting that. I didn't like being a nursemaid. Courtney can function on drugs, whereas in Kurt's case, if you feel that maybe you don't deserve all this fame, maybe if you do some heroin, you'll feel better about it, and it will work for a while, and then it stops working. And that's when you make a choice to either stop, or you go crazy, or you go to jail, or you die. One night in May of 1993, police were called to the Cobain residence. Kurt had overdosed. 
it would be the first of several unpublicized brushes with death that year. I've seen him overdose a couple of times and helped and saw him play a show four hours later at Roseland. So he was pretty resilient. It was really a relationship based on 100% trust. He'd pass out and seek oblivion, and I'd have to fucking slap him and, you know, put pins in his balls and put ice cubes everywhere and whatnot, and it started to piss me off. He once um, overdosed on the floor in front of his mother and sister, and I went to do all the shit you do when someone overdoses, and I look up and they'd taken off. I was like, whoa. Kurt was caught in a spiral of self-destruction and self-loathing, fueled in part by his love-hate relationship with fame and all its trappings. At the time, both Kurt and Courtney were in the studio working on new albums. The drama of their personal lives fueled a lot of the lyrics in both Live Through This and In Utero. You know, songs came from those feelings and that pain. In early 1994, with Courtney's personal life in constant crisis, Hole was putting the finishing touches on Live Through This with a new bassist, Kristen Pfaff. The material was there, and the material was brilliant. The early press on Live Through This was overwhelmingly positive, and Courtney finally seemed on the verge of mainstream success. But in March, when Kurt's health problems delayed Nirvana's European tour, she rushed to his side in Rome. What wasn't made public was that Kurt had tried to commit suicide. I'd never thought, oh, that could be a suicide attempt. I remember people mentioning it, and I'm thinking, no, he just, he took too many pills. Courtney, after the Rome overdose, was hysterical, and it was real. When the couple returned to Seattle, Courtney knew things had to change. She was desperate to help her husband. I went up there just to visit, and she thought I might be a positive influence because I had recently been sober, but people quit when they want to quit. just wanted more. He just wanted more. He didn't want to be alive. I don't know what it was. Something snapped and made him feel worthless. Worthless. The last time I saw Kurt, he came in the kitchen, sat on the floor. We talked a lot. The most I'd ever talked to him, and he gave me the, a really, really long hug. So, that's like a goodbye. In late March, things had gotten so bad that Courtney and those closest to Kurt staged an intervention. It was like everybody thinking, this is out of control. No one was happy. Everyone was miserable. There were deals that weren't able to close, so there was, like, money on the table that people wanted to, like, you know, get in everybody's pockets. I was strung out. And so to get this call from Courtney, like, you have to come over, we're doing this, I was like, how dare I go there and say anything about someone else's abuse when I'm doing it too? Courtney played her final card. She threatened to leave Kurt if he didn't get help. It was stupid. It was fucking horrible. It was violent. It made him feel like he wasn't worth shit. It was a really long day, and we all made big statements about, you can't live like this, and you're going to die. I shouldn't have allowed it, and I did. And I will not participate in interventions because of this. I know better than to gang up on someone. You don't do that. Courtney checked into the peninsula in L.A. for a hotel detox, accompanied by Frances and her nanny, Jackie. Kurt followed, entering rehab at L.A.'s Exodus Center. I brought Francis to visit Kurt in rehab. He sounded amazing. 
he seemed amazing until hindsight. I don't think he ever really planned on getting off of drugs, but I think he wanted to say goodbye to Francis. Only 72 hours into rehab, Kurt left, telling no one. Courtney feared the worst. I called the hospital and he had jumped the fence. I knew it. He jumped the fucking fence. He disappeared, and that's when Courtney started calling everybody, hiring private detectives to try to find him. On April 8th, 1994, Kurt was found in the couple's Seattle home, dead of a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. For people considering suicide, it is bullshit. You know, like, endure the moment. I loved my husband very much, and I protected him a lot. And, you know, you have to put yourself in Francis's shoes. Because for all she knows, she's not good enough or something. That's all she knows. She doesn't know that he really loved her. Coming up in part two, Courtney struggles to cope with her devastating loss while being attacked by the media and those close to her. Caught in a dark pit of criticism, drugs, and rock and roll, many expected Courtney to self-destruct. She continued to wrestle with fame, drug use, family drama, and heartbreak. But amidst it all, she found her way back to the spotlight. Tune in to the next episode for Courtney Love, Behind the Music, Part 2. Listen to Behind the Music on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Want more episodes? You can watch Remastered, Best of the Vault, and new episodes of Behind the Music, only on Paramount+. Plus. Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.